0: Great to see you here this week, thanks so much for being here, those of you who have ventured out and for those of you at home. I do trust that the, uh, that the sharing on Facebook and um, even sending the URL from the website to other people uh, will be working this week and we trust that many people will be blessed by the worship and the word. We come today to the most sacred place in scripture, and the single most important moment in human history. It's the most sacred place in scripture because all of scripture leads to this point or flows from this point. It's the most important point in human history because all of the destiny of humanity pivots on this moment. Because humanity is is destined for separation, alienation. Humanity is destined for darkness rather than light, death rather than life, because we have cut ourselves off from the life source of the universe. At the very beginning of the story, you all know this, Adam and Eve, our original father and mother, disconnect their lives from God the Creator and choose to go their own way. And the first words out of the mouth of God are these words. Where are you? The poignancy of those words ring down the ages. God's sense of desolation, God's desire to find humanity, God's commitment to seek and to look and to embrace again these creatures that were the crown of his creation. Those words ring down through the centuries and find their ultimate expression in this moment in the life of Jesus when he surrenders that life on behalf of all humanity. And the question that we're going to have today, a question that was introduced by Erin as she taught the children, and no doubt taught the rest of us as well, is what is the appropriate response for us, whether we believe or whether we find ourselves still on the journey toward belief? What's the appropriate response as we come to the cross of Jesus? I'm going to read from Luke chapter 23 and verse 44. And I'm going to pause as I read through the passage today and just look at the meaning behind the words so that we can, as it were, orientate our hearts in the right direction and find ourselves being able to embrace the appropriate responses that God would call us to have. Luke 23 and verse 44 says this: "It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, "'Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now Luke, along with the other gospel writers, gives us a faithful account of what happened in this most special moment. And he gives us an understanding. It's perhaps not as detailed and comprehensive as Matthew's account. It perhaps doesn't give us the same angle that that Mark and John want us to engage with. But most certainly, it is clear from the presentation here in Luke's account that something important needs to be understood about the death of Jesus. And it is this. Judgment came upon him. The unmistakable symbol of darkness covering the earth is always a symbol of judgment. And as we're told in the other gospel accounts, Jesus in the darkness knows the dereliction of complete separation from the Father and calls out with a voice of dereliction. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Of course, all of the people that were gathered around the cross, except for perhaps one or two Romans, would have been able to reference those words from the Psalms because they would have been brought up from their mother's knee to recite the Psalms and memorize the Psalms. And so those words would have led them through that Psalm to a place that speaks about hands and feet being pierced and a life being offered up. Jesus we're told by Paul 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. This is not about particular sins. Sins are the evidence of a much greater reality. They are, sins are the symptom of the condition. The condition is called sin. And this sin This separation, this alienation from God that began when human beings unhooked themselves from the life source of the universe and decided to go their own way. That reality was what Jesus became. In himself, he became what we are. By ourselves, we are separated from God We're born into separation. We're born into alienation. And Jesus becomes that very reality. And as he becomes that very reality, so the judgment on that very reality comes upon him. And the symbol of this is darkness gathering upon the earth. Now this is tremendously important. Because if you're going to make an appropriate response to the death of Jesus this morning, it's important that you differentiate between the response that is appropriate for a believer and the response that is appropriate for an unbeliever or a pre-Christian, a person still on the journey to identifying with Jesus and embracing him with faith. But if you are a believer today, Confronted by the death of Jesus, it is inappropriate for you to respond to the death of Jesus with guilt, shame, or fear. It is inappropriate. I know that perhaps in the past, your guilt, shame, and fear has been used as a tool of emotional manipulation in the hands of some christian leaders and god i'm sure forgives them for that but you'll never hear that from me the scripture makes it patently clear that fear is to do with judgment first john chapter 4 verse 18 fear is to do with judgment and fear is of course associated with shame and guilt because fear comes into the world at exactly the same moment that guilt and shame come into the world and that moment was the moment when adam and eve sp- decided to step away from god fear they were afraid of god finding them shame They realized that they were naked and hid their nakedness and and tried to cover themselves with leaves. Guilt, they recognized that they'd done something wrong. Fear is to do with judgment, but judgment has already come for the believer. And it isn't going to come again. This is so important. Because if you don't get this, you never get free. Your life will be held accountable for what it is that God has put into your life. And what it is that he's asked from you. Yes, but the day of judgment has come already for the believer. Because you have been accepted into the identity of Christ. He became sin so that you can become a son. It's not a gender, it's a position. You are the sons of God because he became the sin of humanity. And the transaction is simple. Jesus accepted all of your condition and mine. And he was judged for that condition. And the ultimate judgment for that condition is death. It can't happen again. If you think it can happen again, then you do not believe that what Jesus did was full and complete once And for all. He's done it for you. He's not only forgiven you the sins, he's dealt with the judgment of sin. And it changes everything. Turn to your neighbor and just say, This changes everything. It changes everything. Because now you can risk, now you can take chances, now you can, you, can, you can have a go, now you're not afraid of every step that you take and the approval of others and the disapproval of the spiritual elite, now you can step out in boldness knowing that there is no day of judgment that you will face. Yes, your life will be held in the balance and God will say, well, what did you do with what I gave you? But it doesn't mean that you're not going to be accepted into everlasting blessedness and presence because the day of judgment has come. And if that's not good news, I honestly have no idea what you define good news to be. This is how Paul puts it. He's got a bit of an argy-bargy with Peter. It's an English expression for a bit of a dispute. And in Galatians chapter 2, the dispute continues because Peter has been drawn into the myth of believing that somehow we can add to the work of Christ. Maybe it's because He wasn't there when Jesus died. I don't know. But somehow, he's got kind of drawn into the web of believing that religious observance is of some value to God. And Paul, when he's speaking to Peter puts it like this I'm going to find it for you because it's tremendously helpful it's uh, Galatians chapter 2 you can find it if you've got your Bibles with you Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 now just listen to what this says Jesus becomes sin for us we become a son in him So he gives us his identity, he takes our identity, and there's an exchange. Look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Hello? Working, yeah? Christ died for nothing. If you think that you're going to face the day of judgment, then it's like you're saying that Christ died for nothing. Because either you've been crucified or you haven't. And if you've been crucified, it's already happened. And you say, well, I, I don't remember feeling any of that. That's the good news. He felt all of it for us. And it's absolutely amazing news. Amazing news. Of course, we want to live a life of unbridled, risk-taking, pioneering love for God. Of course we do. Of course, we want to invest every possible sin of life and faith in what it is that God wants to do of course we do but that will not count in relation to our place in heaven because it's already settled Jesus said I give you my spirit father because it's finished and it truly is finished Would you like to continue a little bit? Verse 47. So if it is inappropriate for us to operate with guilt and shame and fear, because all of that's been dealt with in the fact that the day of judgment has come upon Jesus, then what are the appropriate responses? The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Friend, if you are listening, watching or present today and you do not know Jesus, then what would be your appropriate response? The appropriate response would be this. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Surely, he was a good man. Surely, he was a good man. And maybe by recognizing that God was working in Jesus and that Jesus was doing a good thing, you will be making yet another step towards the place where you realize that in Jesus, all of your separation has been embraced and taken to the grave. Maybe as you listen or as you watch online, live or recorded, or whether you're here right now, and you know that in your heart you've not set apart Christ as Lord, you know that your eyes are not on Jesus, you know that you've not come to the point of surrender to him, then begin the journey of surrender today, please. By recognizing that the good man, Jesus, is a man for whom you should at least thank God. And if you can go beyond the thanksgiving to the revelation that Jesus died in your place, that you might never have to face the day of judgment, then today, then today make the exchange and become one who is described as a son. Not because it's a gendered expression, but because it is the identity of Jesus. And it simply means this. The access that you have to God the Father is identical to the access that Jesus has to God the Father. There is no distinction. As soon as you make the exchange, as soon as you make the transaction, as soon as you recognize that all you are as a sinner, all you are in your sin and separation is in him, He who knew no sin became sin. As soon as you know that, then a right relationship exists between you and God. The right relationship is called righteousness in the Bible. The right relationship exists between you and God, and the right relationship means that you're as close to the Father as Jesus. Think of that. That we might be the righteousness of God. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. There were those who were there as voyeurs. There were those those who were there as, as mockers. There were those who were there with cynical dispositions towards God. They'd seen Jesus come up from nowhere, steal their position of influence and authority and they wanted him quietened and they wanted him gone. But when they saw what happened, they beat their breast. Now the Bible is quite clear about what that means. And Luke himself tells us in Luke 18 that there is a Pharisee and a notorious sinner standing before God in the temple. And the notorious sinner beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. The people who came with cynicism realized that something terrible had happened and they had colluded with it and perhaps that was the beginning of the turning of their hearts who knows whether some of these people were there six weeks later on the day of Pentecost when Peter came out and said you, you, you have killed the Lord of glory you have colluded with wicked men to see the death of the Messiah, but he's come alive again. I wonder whether some of those who beat their breasts and walked from the the cross were there in that crowd and came to know Jesus that day because in that moment of repentance, their journey to life began. Maybe you're here because people expect you to be here. Maybe you're watching with a hardened heart Jesus died for you. And if you feel that conviction, then allow that to be the first step of a wonderful discovery of what the grace of God might mean for you. Verse 49, But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. What do disciples do? What do disciples do in the face of difficulty, in the face of challenge, in the face of overwhelming circumstances? What disciples do is they watch and they wait and they listen for what it is that God might say. Because Jesus has trained a disciple with the two important questions of being a disciple. What is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? And so those who came with him from Galilee were not swept away by the emotion of the moment. It was devastating what it was that they saw Jesus dying, bleeding naked on a cross. But rather than run from Calvary, rather than allow themselves to be swept up in the entirely understandable emotions of the moment, they hold on. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what it is that may may venture into your life in these coming days, but the most important thing a disciple will do is this. Just watch. Just wait. And listen. Because God will speak. And when God speaks, we'll be able to hear. And when we hear, we'll be able to respond. And the two questions of Jesus will be answered in us What is God saying? What am I going to do about it? It's amazing, isn't it, that they stood and watched. But of course, the narrative continues. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, good and upright, who had not consented with their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. For Joseph, the cross, like Nicodemus, who were told in John accompanied Joseph. Two men of high privilege, high status, real prestige. These men were members of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They did not assent with the Sanhedrin's decision. But they were secret disciples for fear of the Jews, says John. When you come to the cross... All secret disciples have to come out into the open. Because at the cross, we reveal where we stand. Do we stand with the Savior or not? Today we come to the cross. Are you a secret disciple? a camouflaged Christian in your college dorm, in your, in your place of work, in your family? Is this something that has been a secret harbored in your heart because you fear the rejection, you fear the disapproval, you fear the mocking of those around you? I'm sure Joseph and Nicodemus felt the same. But the cross is the watershed when you come out into the open and my encouragement to you today is allow this moment to be that moment for you allow this moment to be that moment for you at home online in house make this moment that moment for you when you say no Jesus is my Lord and he is my savior. I can't give you all the right answers. I can't argue in the way that you want me to argue but this is my faith and I stand in his grace. What else? There's two other things here that we find at the cross. As we look at these peripheral characters in the story of Jesus. People whose names are not even mentioned in the text of Scripture, and yet they've given us ways of understanding the appropriate or inappropriate response to the death of Jesus. There's two others that we need to consider before we leave this holy ground. There is Joseph... And there is Mary. Just think of it for a moment. Simeon, the old man, Anna, the prophetess, were there when Jesus was presented in the temple when he was eight days old. Simeon said, now I can go to my grave in peace. And his final words as he looked at Mary, he said, and a sword will pierce your soul. Just think of it for a moment. Mary is not able to come close to her son. And there's a man named Joseph who washes the blood from his body and wraps him in strips of cloth do you think that Mary was taken back to that first day just think women will perhaps be able to understand better than men but there you are exhausted from giving birth and sweet Joseph takes the baby Jesus and washes him and wraps him in cloth and lays him in a manger and on the last day another Joseph washes his body Wraps him in cloth, and lays him in a grave. Dear Mary, what is the right response for a believer at the cross? A soul that's pierced by the sadness that this is what it took. It's not guilt, it's not shame, it's not fear, it's just grief. This is what it took for me to know life. But wait, there's one more response. And just marvel at this with me. Verse 56. Then the women went home, prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Just think of this for a moment. Overwhelmed with grief. Struck by this incredible synchronicity of prophecy. What would you do? It would be entirely appropriate for you to be rocking backwards and forwards in the corner of your bedroom. Of course it would. But what do the women do? The most noble of the disciples. What do they do? They make preparation for another day. Because this day will pass. And there will be things that we need to do on another day. This is not the last day. There is another day. And we need to make preparations for another day. I wish that so many would hear this as we face the crucifixion of our culture and our nation. It's entirely appropriate to feel the grief and sadness But the women show us the way. They make preparation for another day. Don't you find that amazing? And here's the thing. God honors the fact that they make preparation for another day. That they've decided that they're going to go to the tomb anyway. That they're going to find a way to prepare the body of Jesus for his rightful burial anyway. They're going to face a, a huge stone that could never be moved by human hands anyway. They're going to turn up with the small offerings of their spices and perfumes anyway. And for those people, they see the day of resurrection. Do you see it? Do you see it? Because they made the preparation. The day of resurrection came. And they were the first witnesses. And no one will ever take that from them. In all of the councils of the Lord Almighty. In all of the history of God's people. The women... Who, in their determination to prepare for another day, were the ones who were the first witnesses of the greatest day, the day of resurrection. There is another day, friends, and we need to prepare for it. Those of you who were practicing in your house churches, with the Discovery Bible Method. Keep practicing. There's another day. Those of you who are reading the scriptures and gathering with friends online so that you can fortify your soul and strengthen your heart, there is another day. And it will come. There is a day that you can prepare for There is a time when God will revive. There is a time when God will turn the hearts of many to him. And the question is this. Will we have made preparation for that day? The women did. And they stand in all of history as the ones who were the first witnesses. Isn't that amazing? So what is your response today? What is the appropriate, what is the inappropriate response today? Of course, I don't know what's going on in the chambers of your heart. Only you and the Lord know that. But as we come to pray now, offer up What's happening in your heart right now. And let him take you on to the next step. As we wait for the day of resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that all of these figures gathered around the cross are in many ways peripheral figures apart from Mary to to the, the central story. So many of them, Lord, have no name within the text. So many have no prominent place and yet they teach us, Lord, how we should respond. Lord, I pray this day that you would break from the hearts and minds of every believer the fear of the day of judgment I pray, Lord, that every believer would be free this day to live in the freedom, Jesus, that you bought for them when you became our sin. We pray, Lord, that we would live in such unbridled freedom that we risk it all for you. We pray, Lord, for those who as yet do not know you, that their hearts would be turned towards you. And we pray for us all, Lord, that we would grieve what it took for us to know life and make preparations for a new day, a day when you'll move and give life and bring resurrection. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory, because you are good and you are God. And you have changed everything by your death. Amen.